The George Floyd protests went on in cities around the world and has begun important conversations regarding police training and accountability. The protests in Portland, Oregon, went on for over 100 nights and made international news. My guest John Meyer is a filmmaker in Portland and has produced a documentary entitled Tipping Point on this episode of Times Like Now. Hello, John Meyer. Thank you for joining me today. Uh, how are you? I'm doing fine. It's I, I'm in my office in Southeast Portland, and it's just I'm just here by myself. It's normally a little bit more bustling, but uh, I'm just here by myself, so it worked out perfect for this. That's great. Thank you for joining me. And your film, Tipping Point, I had the uh, luxury or the special access to watch the film. I understand it's not out there yet as you're trying to find distribution, which is which is great. I hope you do succeed in that. I hope this film gets out. Is the trailer out there for people to watch? The trailer is out. Um, it's on YouTube. It's hard to find on there because it doesn't have very many views, but it has tons of views on Facebook. It has like 20,000 views. So, you know, when there's more views, they turn up in search results easier. So if you go to uh, the old church's Facebook page, that's where it's at. Um, so TOC some, sometimes is referred to it as, but the the old church concert hall, which is nothing to do with an actual church. It's just right. And maybe if they were to search uh, J O N M E Y E R. Yeah, I mean, you'll find my stuff. I, I don't think I don't think that would be harder to find the trailer doing that. Okay, so we recommend the old church. For sure. That's where, and then if you really want to get right to it, just go to the video tab and it's like the third one. Yeah. Okay. This documentary focused on the George Floyd Black Lives Matter protests in Portland, Oregon. This went on for over a hundred nights in downtown Portland. It made international news. Everybody probably knows of this. And you were out there toe to toe in the thick of it. And you took quite a bit of risk to life and limb. And I understand you, you took some stitches from this. Uh, yeah. What happened? Uh, I'm, I'm glad you asked. It's quite an interesting uh, story about how I got stabbed. Uh, I was stabbed by a proud boy or somebody who identifies as a proud boy. And uh, so basically the entire time I was down there, I, I felt kind of a sense of security. I hate to say it, but it's because I'm white. <laughs> uh, it, it, Anytime I got near the cops, then it was it was just like uh, there was this kind of I could look them right in the eye and I can kind of just gauge it. And they were just they, they kind of gave me the look. They saw my camera. They saw I wasn't yelling or waving flaming things. And I could just kind of tell that, like, you know, they were they were definitely going to gas me along with everyone else. And I got gassed and it was horrible. But I, I, I did have a kind of a sense of security that that they weren't going to single me out and hurt me. Um Eventually they did, and that changed my perspective. But that was near the end. Um, and but but the two times that I got where I re- really feared for my safety wasn't actually from the cops. It was from uh, the Proud Boys both times. And uh, the other time was more scary than the stabbing, even though I I had to get stitches and everything for that. It was uh, a vehicle, a Dodge Charger, uh, blasted through some protesters standing in the streets with what it appeared to be the intent of hitting and killing as many people as possible. It was. He was going about 80 miles an hour right through, and everybody leapt out of the way and just barely missed it. It's in the documentary. You can see I filmed it, and it's really scary, but it didn't make news because he didn't hit anybody. And so it just that's what happens. It's like if no one gets killed or maimed, then it just doesn't make the news, you know, even if the, the intent was there. Yeah. And I, so uh, that, 
that happened a week after the stabbing. And so that's when I called it quits. Actually, I was like, I can't, there's too much risk. And the cops don't seem to be doing anything to tame the proud boys. If anything, they work with them. And I have lots of evidence, uh, to, to corroborate that claim. Yes. As of today, Canada has ruled proud boys, a terrorist organization that speaks volumes. Oh, before we continue, I didn't even tell you the most important part of that story. Sorry. I got sidetracked. Um, when I got stabbed, it was, uh, I blame the police for that actually. Um, not the person who stabbed me because they, they showed up as a mob, you know, I feel like I got caught in the melee. Like I wasn't singled out. I think uh, it was, I was just on the wrong side of the line, you know? And to me, it's like, this was broad daylight. It was day about 80 or so of the sustained protests where every single night we clashed hard with the police and they made lots of arrests and tear gassed and all sorts of stuff. And you can see it all in the dock and I'm sure you saw it in the news. And that was a hundred percent of the days were like that. There wasn't a single day off. Uh, where the cops didn't have some sort of uh, violent interaction with the protesters. Then the Proud Boys show up in a group of about two to 300 of them. Uh, and it was the one time that the cops didn't show up. And they were actually there. They were on the other side of the parking garage uh, hiding, basically, uh, in a big, large group of them. And they actually came came out of hiding and tear gassed everybody after like a minute after all the Proud Boys left, after they were there for about three hours and brawling and breaking windows and slashing tires. I mean, I, it was crazy. Breaking arms, breaking hands. People got really injured there. It was obvious they were there for a brawl. They showed up with weapons and loaded guns. They were pointing at people. They had shields, with, which indicates you know they want to fight, but their shields had screws pointing outward. So they were weapons. They weren't just defensive Anyway, I blame the cops because why didn't the cops come in and stop the first actual riot of the entire protest? Because everything else they they deemed a riot every day leading up to that wasn't a riot. No one was rioting. They were protesting and maybe loudly, but they weren't rioting. I mean, it depends on how you define rioting. But to me, it's a brawl and breaking windows and breaking and slashing tires. That's a riot. And that's what was happening. And so they didn't show up. And lo and behold, it blew up and people got limbs broken and I got stabbed and yeah. Yes. The whole thing is a, a cluster and went down very, very wrong. Of course, things were at a a point where there were a few hundred people and then until the federal agents came in and the crowd immediately ballooned to 2000 plus people. It was uh, quoted uh, low end ten thousand, high end twenty thousand, for for the Saturday night that that uh, after the the feds moved in, that was the biggest night of the of the whole summer. Yeah, there was uh, many thousands around that whole week, but there was a Saturday night specifically when Ted Wheeler went down there and talked, and that's when the crowds drew as as possibly as much as twenty thousand, low end ten thousand. Ted Wheeler being the the mayor of Portland, Oregon, uh, of, okay, course, of course, uh, you know this this made international news. This was a, a big deal. It went on, and in your documentary, I note uh, a con- a conflict between the Black Lives Matter protesters, the people who were there to make their point heard about George Floyd. And then there was another faction that seems to be just there to break windows and cause trouble and cause chaos and anarchy. 
And that always seems to Mm -hmm. be the incident. Now, Portland has an old history of being against those with Confederate flags or those with Nazi flags. They will always come down to meet those people. Your your video does a fine job of showing the, the contrast between the two groups. One group is very clearly saying we're here to, to make a point. I don't know if I did a good enough job on that, so thank you. <laughs> I, I'm sorry, say that again. I said I didn't know if I did a good enough job on that. That was hard to do, so thank you for noticing. No, <laughs> I, I think it, it is hard because in your documentary, you just let the people speak. You're not in this at all. Um, and I was I, I'm, I like those kinds of documentaries that just lets the story unfold and lets the tale be told. And this, I, I think, did a great job. And that was, uh, in fact, there's a clip that uh, from that that really stands out to me. One of the people on the street brings this up to a camera person, and I wanted to play that, if that's all right. Yeah, please do. Yeah. You said whenever this ends. Right. How do you think this is? You would have to go ask the people throwing mortars. We're not doing that. We never know what's going to go so down. So if you want to know when that's going to end, uh-huh. you'll have to go ask them. I will literally go tell them, how is this for our cause? How, are, how is this helping our cause? Oh, because Black Lives Matter. But why does Black Lives Matter to you? We don't have the right to be shooting off fireworks at federal buildings. That's not a right that we were given. So that is diminishing our message by doing things like that. Now it's kind of just turned into this police versus people i don't even call it black lives matter anymore it's it's just the police versus people what is the end goal and are we making any progress or is just this night after night after night and we know what's going to happen it doesn't feel productive or useful for me anymore to be going out every day and just watching the police be brutal some very powerful quotes uh some of the people that you interview in this documentary, the activists, um, Mike Crenshaw, as as well as he, his name comes to mind yeah, as a, a Portland entertainer yeah. and activist for many, many years. Um, I was very impressed with the, the behind the scenes. The street stuff is amazing and dramatic and, and, and frightening. Um, but the interviews you do later on with folks... Um, the fella, forgive me his name, that was attacked on the Max train and uh, was stabbed. Micah Fletcher. Micah Fletcher, a yeah. very eloquent speaker, very well-spoken. Um, I was very impressed with with a lot of, of content that these folks have to say. The message is clear. The message is important. And I hope this documentary gets out. Yeah, Mike Crenshaw... I could have made the whole documentary with just him narrating. And I even considered it because <laughs> he was so good. His interview was so powerful. And there was so much stuff we couldn't get into just for time uh, sake. Uh, it, so much so that I, um, I I run a music documentary series called Contrast with a K. And that's what I was doing b- before and now after uh, the tipping point. And I think I'm going to approach Mike. I haven't talked to him yet, but I'm going to approach Mike and see if he would let me cover him for one of my 10 minute uh, episodes of that, just because he, I need to get more, more of his info out. He's just such a, such an awesome resource. He was a, you know, raised in Minneapolis. And so he knew about the, and was victims of the racist policing in Minneapolis before he moved to Portland. So he had a lot of really interesting takes. Now the folks who were down there organizing um, with medical 
with food. They were just serving food. They were just trying to take care of the rubber bullets. And I use that word because uh, they're not rubber bullets. That makes it sound so peaceful and and like airsoft or something. It's not rubber bullets. The one fellow who was hit square in the face, that did make news. He was standing in the crowd and was hit square in the face from a federal, was that a federal agent or was that a, a Portland police officer? It, it, it was a federal agent. Yeah, he was standing in front of the federal building. He got shot. And uh, it's my belief, and you won't hear this anywhere else just because it's my own theory. It's my belief that the federal agent was trying to make him look stupid by shooting the, uh, what's it called? The, the, the stereo he was holding above his head. I think he was trying to break that. I'm not trying to excuse the federal's feds behavior. I just can't fathom someone aiming for someone's skull like that. Like that just doesn't enter the realm of possibility for me because I, I just, <laughs> it's so hard to, because he was not, you know, you see there's video of it. He was clearly not approaching them or he was a safe distance away. He wasn't on their property. It, he There wasn't even a, a mob, a crowd around. He was kind of the only one. And like, I think the Fed was just trying to get that he missed and can't own up to that because even that would be admitting that he was would was shooting. You know, if he was saying I was shooting the stereo out of his hand, then he would have to admit that he that he went against protocol. Right, because I believe the the protocol on those on those weapons they are supposed to be bounced off of the street. Have you heard that? You know, there's a maybe. I, I don't think that's actually a protocol for for rubber bullets. Those the rubber bullets were once again. I'm not trying to excuse their behavior, but the the truth is they were hardly ever used out there. Um, it was mostly pepper balls, and those you got to bounce off the street. I know is what my understanding is, and I got hit with pepper balls, and those weren't that bad. The the rubber bullets are way worse. Again, no excuse for such a thing, especially for. You know, and, and and well, you do speak with some police officers, and I found that to be you know kind of enlightening and and you know helpful to hear how they feel about it. The chief of police at the time, again, he states most of the officers are there to do a good job and to to protect the city, but it can't be helped to kind of question that when you see your video and when you hear stories such as as you and many, many others are telling, what they say does not really come out as factual when you get right down to it, as you said. Yeah, and I wonder, I wonder if you noticed that there was a couple sly edits I did in there, which were not a manipulation of truth. They just were sly edits, but it was totally truthful. But there were times when the, when, like, when the officer says, we always give a warning before tear gassing. It's part of our policy. And then I cut to Sol Luna saying, sometimes there's never, or no, he says like about half the time, there's just no warning. It's just like, as soon as they're issuing the warning, the tear gas is already out, you know? And that's correct. That's the correct, because uh, <laughs> I was out there and I got gassed and there was no warning when I, whenever I actually inhaled the gas. When there was a warning, I'd get out of there because I wasn't wearing a mask. I didn't wear a gas mask because I couldn't shoot with, by putting my eye up to my camera that way. So I, I always just tried to stay upwind, which actually really helped. And then uh, uh, sometimes they get me anyway, though. And that's when I got really upset because there was no warning. Well, there were thousands of cell phones recording all of this from a thousand angles. Besides yeah. you, you took your video and, and made something with it. But there are 
literally thousands of videos. And I'm sure many, many of them are upon YouTube and, and other places to see this kind of uh, this contradiction as, as we're discussing the, the supposed warning. And that's, again, it, that's just not the truth. When you get down onto the street level, um, it seemed, it seemed a war zone. It, it literally felt from your video, from your movie tipping point, the name like a war zone. And it, I'm sure it must have felt like that, especially when the feds come in in military attire. I mean, I'm not a you know a veteran or anything, so I have I cannot speak to what a war zone is actually like. Uh, but as far as feeling like a war, war zone, not maybe not is a war zone, but feeling like one with the with the smoke and the and the bangs that were so loud you you can't hear other people warning you that stuff is coming because there's so many pops and bangs and you can't see because of this the gas is getting it. I mean, I, yeah, I gotta agree with you. It sure sure felt like what my impression of a war zone is like. Well, I mean, t- to be to be frank and to be blunt, when the police come in with that kind of weaponry, and then the Proud Boys and others come through 200 strong with shields and guns and knives because you were stabbed in this incident. That is a war zone. There are people there to do you harm. Cars being driven through uh, to run down people. That that is a war zone in, in my mind. Fair enough. I, I I'm just watching the the, the series Pacific right now, <laughs> and I just saw the first episode, and there's like a beach with like a hundred thousand dead bodies on it, and I'm like, yeah, that's a war zone. <laughs> so yeah, you're right though. <laughs> okay, a uh, 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 war might be a, a strong a strong word, but certainly a uh, <laughs> a similar uh, scenario to such a yeah, thing. You're right. You're right. The Black Lives Matter cause, the um, George Floyd protest, this went on in cities all across America. Portland was not uh, isolated in this. This happened all over the country and the world, as a matter of fact. The, the question I have is, is, what did you learn in your time out there that you maybe didn't know? either from the interviews that you did later or from your time in the streets. What did you learn from all of this? This is, I'll tell you, I got a good answer for that. What, what, what I learned was actually pretty shocking to me. Um, Before going into this, I had a a special uh, hatred of police and the local police, especially because of the news stories that I read about these cops getting caught with Nazi propaganda and stuff like that. And, and then getting promotions afterwards, but and and all of it is so crazy that that it it, it kind of feels unbelievable. And so I, I I started to question my sources, even though my sources were legit ones as far as other news, and because it was so obnoxiously uh, white supremacist, like out in the open, not, not just a a racial bias issue, you know, like it was literal praising of Hitler kind of stuff was it was and 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 i can if you want to know to give a reference uh the the guy uh the guy's name mark kruger he was a, a police officer that put up nazi plaques in in rocky butte park a couple years prior to george floyd dying so that kind of radicalized me and i expected honestly to get there and realize how much i had been maybe manipulated through the the sources because i chose my sources based on my political beliefs and i was hoping to 
to, to for them to the reality of it to be a little tamer. And in, in fact, the reality of it was far worse. In fact, that Mark Kruger guy, who was an out who outed himself as a Nazi, proudly, uh, is the was ended up being the most uh, paid o- overtime collector officer of the whole protest for the whole summer. He was the front and center, the lead of the whole thing. And so to me, that is just, <laughs> I tell people that and, and they still, they don't, a lot of people either are already on my side or they don't believe me, even though the sources are all there. It's all out in the open. It's not hidden. It just feels like an unbelievable situation that these guys are literal white supremacists in the police force and get promoted for, for showing that. The FBI did a report in, I think 19, I want to say 1998, that this was something to be on the lookout for, that these kinds of groups were infiltrating the military and the police around the United States. So it's not new. Well, they didn't infiltrate. They created. Portland was founded by white supremacists. And then we slowly became more liberal till till we were extremely liberal. But the, the police force never got overhauled. It never got rooted out. In fact, they just got sick of living here. So now 80% of the cops, you'll see this in the doc, 80% of the cops uh, in Portland don't live here. So it's not their community to, to protect. And they just keep hiring their their cousins and their brothers or whatever. That's my guess. I don't know that for a fact. But I'm guessing somehow they, they've maintained their status of white supremacy since their inception, which wasn't that long ago. You know, less than 100 years ago, black people weren't allowed to buy property in Oregon. That was the only state in the union that was like that at the time. So <laughs> we're... we're Right now, you know, the, and the doc highlights this, is that we need to reckon with our past in Oregon, with that we were the haven for racists who, who were too racist for the South. They, they moved out here once they couldn't have slaves anymore, you know, and they built Oregon, not Seattle and San Francisco and the other West Coast towns. I'm sure they had their own issues, but Oregon was specifically the, the, racist, the racist's haven, the white supremacist haven. And... We just point to me in history when the police got overhauled from that situation. It never happened. And that's what, and so we're stuck with it. It is a, uh, it is a disheartening situation and I hope something comes from this and uh, some, something changes soon. What are your plans for, the documentary i mean are you going to do festivals is it going to be out where people might see it so we we, we did have a, a pre-screening already and twenty thousand people watched it for two days because we, we advertised it in the willamette weekly um actually we didn't advertise um uh they the, the willamette weekly came to us they got caught wind of it because of the trailer it was real nice to have them come to come to me <laughs> because i've been trying to get them to play my music videos and whatever for years and they, they never respond. And so when they, when they emailed me saying, Hey, can we write up on this? It was awesome. But uh, the actual release, I can't really comment on that. I am the director and the editor and the cameraman, but we have a, I got a couple others um, on my team that are handling the other, that end of it. And I'm just not, I, I intentionally try to stay out of it because it stresses me out. And I, I feel powerless in that, in that realm because it's just not my thing, you know? getting distribution and all that. So I have a producer that's, that's on it. <laughs> that's great to know. I, I hope we can, uh, can see that on Netflix maybe someday. 
exists. We, we, it's not like we just don't know what to do. We, we, we have some interested parties and I, I can't comment on it right now because if we're not, no one's, no one's said any that they, no one's given any commitment yet. Of course, of course, you can't release that kind of uh, information at this point. But you are trying, is my is my point. You're trying to get it out there where a larger audience could see this. Yeah, it's it's looking bright right now. I want to play another clip. Um, this is another thirty seconds that I really stands out in my mind as a as a an important part of of what your movie is saying here. Let's play that. Okay. The real things that a revolution needs that are important, or an uprising, whatever you want to call it, is it needs space and it needs resources. It needs food and buildings and time and a little money. But it also needs philosophers and artists. It needs people that can imagine a new world and that can find rational, very easy, not easy to explain, but explainable, tangible solutions that can be used in everyday life. This story has such a, a impact upon this country right now. This is kind of a, as the movie is called tipping point. It really feels like this hundred plus days in Portland was a tipping point. I think it was a, a an appropriate title for your film. And um, I, I want to commend you for, for doing it, for taking the shot that you took. And uh, I hope it gets out where people can see it. Again, where can people see the trailer? Uh, it's unfortunately the easiest way right now is to get on Facebook and go to the old church concert halls uh, page and then check under the video tabs or just scroll down and you'll see it. Okay. What else have you been doing in film production? Uh, you do music videos. Yeah, music videos are kind of my bread and butter for my for my uh, business. Um, I do about one a month or so. But what I'd really like to plug right now is actually a, a show called Contrast with a K. And and uh, just one one second here. Yeah, I'm recording here. <laughs> my office just got some people coming here. All right, uh, it's an all black and white documentary series uh, where I make like these ten minute episodes. And uh, that's straight from me. Like that's no one's hiring me to do that. Uh, I just realized that in my line of work, I, I'm surrounded by some incredibly talented people that don't necessarily get the kind of coverage that they deserve. Um, and so, yeah, uh, I, it's like a really moody half music video, half informative, kind of almost spiritual uh, themed take on um, musicians and why they write their music. And you can get that. You can find that at contrastdocs.com contrast with a K. That sounds very interesting. I'll, I'll be sure to look that up. Thank you so much. Um, the movie is called Tipping Point. The trailer is out there. If you look up Facebook, uh, The Old Church, and uh, John Meyer, director, filmmaker, and uh, <laughs> protest warrior out there on the streets in Portland, uh, taking one for the team. I really do appreciate your time, John. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you. It was a pleasure. We'll be uh, looking forward to seeing this documentary wherever it may be when it does get out there. I hope you let me know so I can uh, plug this and, and get this out to the folks. Yeah, I will. Thank you again. Hi. Past episodes of Times Like Now can be found wherever you get your programs. Special thank you to the letter J, Cody Robertson, for original music. My name is Trevor Collins. I can be reached... Trevor 
at timeslikenow.com.